So this message, though it's called transforming power, I put a semicolon and said, who are the people in your neighborhood? And I began to sing, and if you know the song, sing it with me. Who are the people in your neighborhood? <laughs> in your neighborhood, <laughs> in your neighborhood, yes. Who are the people in your neighborhood? They're the people that you meet when you're walking down the street. They're the people that you meet each day. You are so good. It's crazy. Because basically, that's what happened. They begin to search that neighborhood. They begin to search that community to figure out how to share the gospel. And they did it. And they did it so well that they threw down the mic. It was so good they didn't have to talk about it. Man, we brought 500 to the Lord this week. They didn't have to do that. The word spread on its own about their faithfulness. They did this through the anointing and the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me say this about Paul and Silas and Timothy. You know Paul. Paul was kind of a rough dude around the edges. And, you know, the Jew of Jews, the smartest of the smartest. And he didn't always get along with his partners. But for the sake of the gospel, they stayed together. Sometimes they split up. Sometimes they got back together. And they split up right here after Thessalonica. The other two guys went to Berea. And Paul kept going on another missionary journey. When I read about what Thessalonica looked like, it was a city much like Chicago with some suburban areas. I guess that's what you call them. And they were wrought with a multiplicity of beliefs. Everything you could imagine, praying to idols and temples, everything you could imagine. A wide range of economic stratuses. There were some guys that, you know, were big wigs and there was others that, you know, they just drew water. That was their job. Others had political beliefs, believe it or not, just like we do today. A myriad of thoughts about the way things ought to be. Increasing mayhem because it was a growing city. I bet you some people in the, in the suburbs of Thessalonica heard that there was a good preacher down in the church in Thessalonica and they moved down there to have a great Christian community. There was still persecution going on and probably people died who were innocent, much like today. These band of brothers, though, however, returned when they heard what was going on in Thessalonica and came back to encourage them. And that's what you see in that passage. It seems like in the scripture, things always move in threes and sevens and ones and things like that. And those numbers, they say, have a meaning. So we know the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We know about this situation with Paul, Timothy, and Silas. We know about Barnabas and Paul and John Mark. And there was a fight then, and they left and split up because they thought John Mark was too young to be hanging out with them and to be teaching. There was faith, hope, and love. That comes in threes. But I want to show you three that you've never heard of before. They should come up on the screen. That is Jane... Sister Harris in the middle and Charlotte on the other side. Jane would be the Timothy because she's the youngest on the far end. But the other two are the Paul and Silas and the bane of my existence when I was a teenager. Let me tell you that I went to a church in the inner city in Inglewood. And when I was in Inglewood, Inglewood was a different place than it is now. It was multicultural. It was, you know, Chinese, a lot of Dutch folks, a lot of everything going on in Inglewood. And so I was going to go through my militant stages. And I went to this church around the corner with my dashiki and my afro that split down the middle. 
and decided I was going to find out what these white folks were still doing in my neighborhood. That's exactly where I went. What is going on here? We got the disciples over here and the stuff is changing and Martin Luther King's coming through the city and you stay in this neighborhood. There were five families that stayed. And so what happened was I went there and I was a church kid. So I grew up in the church in the missionary Baptist church um, and knew church. I also knew that there was some kind of call that wasn't being answered in the church I was in. It wasn't bad. It just got to be regular. We just went to church, you know. It got to be routine and ritualistic and what have you. But I don't know what God was doing, but I remember being seven, and I heard the pastor say, go into your closet and pray. And I literally would go in the closet and fall asleep trying to ask God, tell me stuff when I was little. Went around the corner to this church, and there were 200 or more kids with 30 adults. Now, the reason you don't see my husband here is he's still at that church and there's still 30 adults, probably 40, 50, 60 kids show up on Sunday. So he can't leave. He can't go anywhere because the responsibility is to leave the gospel with those babies. Right. Well, these three ladies were the bane of my existence. And I keep saying that because they really were. They would pick at me, I thought, at that age, and they would say, baby. That dress is a little tight, isn't it? Sugar, don't you think you should not wear red lipstick? <laughs> Sweetheart, you know you sing real good, but you need to tone it down a little bit. And I'm telling you, it got so bad that I would avoid them. I'd go through the basement, come up the back behind the baptismal, go to the boiler room and wait until they left the kitchen so they wouldn't say anything to me. Because I wanted to say stuff, so, and, and those of you who really don't know me, I have a quick wit, very quick. And I knew that if I said something, they were going to call Peggy around the corner, and it would have been on right in the middle of the thing. She would have grabbed me. They call it child abuse now. <laughs> they called it discipline then. And she would have torn me a mouth out of the back of my head for saying something smart to them. So I just didn't, but I ran from them. And then as I grew with the word of the Lord, they began to say things to me like, you know what, maybe you should teach Sunday school. I'm a freshman in high school. There are 200 kids. I'm teaching fifth graders. They gave me this big whopping Bible called a Schofield Study Bible with all the references inside. And then the elders started saying, come to our elders Bible study. See, I didn't know what they were doing. They would get me ready. By the time I'm a senior in high school, I'm teaching 7th and 8th graders who are the most troubled group of individuals sometimes in the whole world. But I love them because they just say it the way it is. They, have, they don't have filters yet sometimes. And I love them because they tell the truth. And we had some fun times together in that Sunday school group. By the time I got to college, I was teaching high school. And by the time I was the end of college, I was teaching, as my mother would say, full-grown women. And I went to a church that women weren't supposed to necessarily teach. And so every time I would come in, I would stay up Saturday night doing my hair, go out with my little old raggedy boyfriend, as they called him. They called every boy I dated a raggedy boyfriend. <laughs> Get my hair together and come to church the next day. And they'd hand me a doily and say, put this on your head. I'm like, I got to wear this. And if they didn't have a doily, they gave me a napkin. This is not a Catholic church. But they did this stuff to me. And you know what? Because the word was so strong, the teaching was so good, the opportunities 
to teach and grow was so great. I didn't say anything. I just put the stupid thing on my head and did what I was supposed to do. Now, I want you to know that before I talk about these ladies, I called them to ask if it was okay. <laughs> Couldn't call Sister Harris in the middle because she's in heaven with the Lord. The lady in the hat with the glasses on the, on the other side of her is Charlotte, and she is in the process of transitioning home. We hope that she lasts so that all of our churches in the city can honor she and her husband, who's a Dutchman from South Africa. Now, the two of those, she's a Polish lady from the Southeast, and she'll tell you, I'm really Polish. I saw her do the jitterbug with her brother at 70. They owned a bar, and at her daughter's wedding, she did the jitterbug and taught us how to do that. But she's dying now. The Lord is taking her slowly but surely, and we want to make sure we say, praise the Lord. And I'm going to say, you were the bane of my existence, but thank you. The other one on this end... Without the hair, the one I would call Timothy because she's younger at the time. I watched this woman raise a family of three or four kids. All her kids have died except one. Both her husbands have died except one. And when I called her to ask, can I talk about you? She answers the phone. I said, good morning, Miss Emma Jane McGee. Who is this? Still feisty. Just had a hip replacement. This is Felicia Thompson. Oh, hey, baby. Now, she probably does not even remember that she was mean to me. And I couldn't remind her, but to, to make a point, the first thing she says to me, did your husband lose some weight yet? I have not talked to her in 15 years. And I said, yes, ma'am, a little bit. And then she said, what have you been doing? How are the girls? I said, well, I just finished going to school. What you got? I said, I got a doctor. Oh, you've been working on that a long time, huh? <laughs> no congratulations. No nothing. And the Holy Spirit said, you know who you're talking to, right? I'm like, okay, yeah, things don't change that much. And what I said to her after that was, you know why I called you? I'm supposed to give the sermon at my church, and I'm talking about Paul and Silas and Timothy and what happened in Thessalonica. And can I use your life as an example? Because I want to say thank you. Real quiet, just like this. She goes, oh, baby. And I knew what was happening. I knew the tears would run down her face. I knew, she said, she said, nobody calls and tells us thank you for the good work that we've done. I so appreciate it. And I was praying that she wouldn't ask me, was I fat now? Because <laughs> she would do that. Too. Well, these women were the Pauls and Silas. They came, they brought the word to a community. The families who were not African-American stayed. The Latino families started coming. Stuff started happening in the church. And I'm telling you, because of them, literally thousands of children have heard the gospel over a 50-year period of time. Now, I was there when I'm 15. I just had a significant birthday. So 45 years of this in my time. They were doing it before I got there. Thousands of meals have been served to church family, people on the street, homeless people, sick and shut in. And Lord knows you don't want to be in the kitchen with those two on the end. <laughs> Hundreds of children receive school supplies, clothes. They would even take, there was one little family across the street, 11 kids, I'll never forget, they always had run. Every one of them's nose ran. I don't know what was going on over there. 
But it became the practice. We wait for them, and we go downstairs and wash their face. And they, you could hear them saying, blow. <laughs> and it was amazing. But all those 11 kids went through our Sunday school. Hundreds of kids were sent to camp at Lake Geneva Youth Camp. And there was a camp created for urban kids in called Circle Wire Ranch on behalf of the, where we heard the gospel. We even had a black ventriloquist with a black dummy. They made sure we heard the gospel in our context and that we understood that we were just as good, that Jesus came to save us, that the whole world was his and we were just a significant part of it. The one with the hat on this side, Charlotte, was a part of creating one of the largest women's conferences in the country. This is before Joyce Meyer. This is before any of these other women, the, the new books that are coming out. I can't think of her name. It begins with a D. Um, all this, we had a conference of 1,500 women at O'Hare Airport. And I mean black, white, people from across the country. Everybody would come in. We would bring down... Um, Jill, I can't think of her last name, from, from Wisconsin. Jill, Jill Briscoe. She was part of our denomination early, back when she was in England. I'd bring her down. I mean, we would have the teaching that was unbelievable. And if you know anything about Stuart and Jill Briscoe, they can teach. They, they are my couple idol, so to speak. Then they helped create a place for single mothers to come. Guess what? Sister Harris in the middle husband had died. Now, I'm going to tell you, they look like church ladies, but they weren't always. <laughs> Charlotte, I told you, could jitterbug and her family owned a bar on the southeast side in, in East Chicago. Miss Harris, God knows, I look at her hands and she was the daughter of a sharecropper, scathed and calloused and hard and cut hands. But she said, after we would do all that, we'd go to Hootenanny. I only ask her what happened at the Hootenanny. But Jane, on the other one, who'd lost her children, who'd done all that caterer, real estate mogul in those days, did everything that anybody could ever do. A hairdresser, had a hair salon. She knew how to make ends meet. She was not a wimp. So what they put in me, by the time I was 30, I had started in our church a social service agency that ministered primarily to single mothers and single women. I asked God one night in the church by myself, you send me one person, I'm good. And he, all he sent me was one person. <laughs> so I started asking for more people. And by the time we finished, the Office of Public Aid for the state of Illinois was sending us girls from around the city to help them get off welfare, find a job, get away from the men they were with who were abusing them. And it's all because I said to them, you all need to teach this class because I've never been a single mother. I don't know what that's like. I need you. You want us to tell our stories? I said, yeah, because you'll get off me if you're talking to them. <laughs> and they did. And because of them, I gained training to stand in front of hundreds of people and comfortably help them understand the Bible. Because of them, I became the catalyst for the Family Care Network, which provided life skills for women to be freed up from domestic violence in the welfare system. Some are now leading biblically-based ministries themselves. Few of them are still at the church. They're now the older women, or getting older women at the church. For me and hundreds of other children, we had the privilege of getting out of the asphalt jungle of Chicago to camp. 
where we could see the stars, where we could hear the word of God, pure, and be touched by the Holy Spirit. Then I became the vice president at a big old women's conference, and a bunch of us from all over the place, including Naomi Cole from Don Columbia, we all wrote a book together on how to do women's ministry in the 90s. And because of them, I do this. Although they were the bane back then, <laughs> they are the blessing. And that's what was going on in Thessalonica. They were multiplying themselves. They were talking about what God had done for them. And they were letting kids lead. That's just something that happens sometimes in church. When you don't have anybody else, Felicia, would you come up and do a solo? Oh, Lord. And so I get that hymnal with no music and sing. And that's what happened to us. Well, you never know what faithfulness to a community can do. Their gospel was a gospel that transformed communities, that transformed the schools, because then the school started asking me to come in and work with the moms and Dragon, Charlotte, and Sister Harris, and all those ladies with me, having a good time. I just said, don't talk when you get in the principal's office, please. <laughs> don't talk. And they didn't. An entire city in the Bible was redeemed because three men did what they were supposed to do. They went, they showed examples of who Christ was through them. They changed a community. Now, the picture you're going to see next, because there's something going on at Christ church. We're about to do the same thing. We're about to step out into something we've never done before. And I know God's going to bless it because he just does. This picture is a planning of when we started an assessment team a few years back to begin to look at how we get outside the church on 31st Street on the corner. And we got trained in asset-based development, community development. We're trained in all kinds of stuff. And then we started to go out and talk to people. Now, most of you probably don't know this is going on. You're going, when did all that happen? It was happening. And we started to talk to schools and we started to talk to the police department. We said, where's the biggest crime? Where's the biggest need? What's going on? And, you know, this is still the burp, so you can't see it as readily. But just like your next door neighbor and just like the person down the street, there's stuff going on in everybody's life, isn't it? We identified this place called Brandywine. Brandywine is an unincorporated Oak Brook Terrace. It's Villa Park. It's Lombard. It's right off uh, Summit and Roosevelt Road and Ardmore and Roosevelt Road. And it's there in all this glory, about 5,000 people total, 1,000 homes. And when you walk through there, you don't see traces of poverty. You start to see on the fringes a little bit. You see cultures from all around the world. You see people who came and lived in those places in the beginning to um, job, to get jobs. Most of us owner-occupied. People are working. People are doing good. But like anything else, everybody's got stuff going on, if you're honest, if you're really honest about it. I've got stuff going on right now. When I leave here, I've got to go home and deal with it. <laughs> it's just because that's life. That's life, and people need each other. Do that. But something has happened, and it just happened Friday night that you need to know about. The first ecumenical eight-church worship service happened. Now, some of you in this room were there. Raise your hand if you were there. You were at something that I didn't think I'd ever see. But eight churches from different cultures got together, 
and we worshiped together. So the black sisters had their dresses on. They were singing backup. There was a Hammond B3 organ. There was a piano. There was, I think, a guitar, a bass guitar going on. And there was a Lutheran pastor who got up and said, all my life I've wanted to share scripture with a Hammond organ behind me. <laughs> and he shared it. And then he sat down. We found out he's in a Bob Dylan tribute band. <laughs> then... The pastor who had a physical disability took a while to get up on the stage. Now, if that happened here, Lord have mercy, the numbers would start counting. I don't know if we could deal with that. But it took him three minutes to get up on that stage, and we waited to hear what he had to say. Because somebody that has to deal with something like that all their lives, and it gets worse, has something to say. Then the black pastor got up, and Murphy, if you know him, was taking bets on the fact that he could not preach within 20 minutes. They had a thing going on. Another guy was talking about something else. I mean, this is just for me. And then the music was just unbelievable because it was stuff I knew. And you all see me up here dancing all the time. But when you see me dancing, it's because I'm imagining not only Stephanie and everybody, but those three black sisters with some congas over here and some stuff on little Martha Manuzi. I was created to make his praise glorious. I'm going to teach y'all that song. It is good. You'll be cha-chaing all around. But stuff like that was happening in this church, and we began to see, and Mike and I just looked at each other and went, this is it. This is what we get to help you experience. Well, we've celebrated 50 years in this place. We celebrate this beautiful building. We have this big steeple. And the steeple is there to draw people to know where the closest church is. You know, that's what that was created for a long time. We had a cross up there so people could look far and wide and see where the closest church is. And as we go deeper in that community, and as Mike and I parlay each other, when we go to talk to people and we're learning each other, we, we punt to each other depending on what the topic is. You know, he let, we do our things together, and it's so much fun. But what's going to happen, those people are going to start coming here like those 264 kids. So she, she goes, oh, <laughs> and when they come, they're going to be a little different than you. Not because they look different, just because they're different. You've never met them before. And they're going to teach you something. But then we have the joy of teaching each other something and being in fellowship with one another. You know, we are a church that serves and we like to do for people. But, you know, we don't let people do for us very much, do we? But when you become friends with your community, when you get to know the people in your neighborhood, God changes you. Now, all of us are not going to be able to participate in that Brandywine project, but there's people in our personal neighborhoods that we need to connect with. And I would challenge you to start there. I don't know about you, but every job I've had, just like those three ladies, I've had some people messing with me somewhere on the job or just because I look funny. One, guy, one lady got mad at me and said, I look like the woman that stole her husband. I'm like, really? And then we came, became good friends. And when I was over her house for New Year's Eve, the guy came to pick up the kids with a new wife. And I said, you owe me an apology. I don't look like her. <laughs> but through that disruption, through her anger at me, we became friends. We're still friends. I just went to her birthday party last week. So there are relationships that you can begin to build and get to know the people in your neighborhood. There's not a person on my block that does not know me, and that's either for good reasons or bad reasons. We won't talk about what that is. But 
all the people who need something to eat know where to go. We sent them over to Sister Brown's house across the street. <laughs> all the people that need to get their court case done, they come to my house because my husband's a jail chaplain. Chaplain, can you go to jail? Can you go to court with me? And I mean, we still have some German folks in our neighborhood, so their kids are always at my house because they said we like black people food better. <laughs> so I said, it's all the same food, but we like that. And, and they come, and so the, what was going on in that church and what's going on today in that church in Inglewood is happening in my house. And I live further away from there now. And what's going to happen as we emerge and bring the gospel to this community in faithfulness, like those people in Thessalonica, they won't have to say, where do we go if we need something? And it's not just physical things. When we need spiritual uplifting, when we need grief counseling, when we need someone to walk alongside of us, we need someone to go to court with us, we need to be around some people who divorced and survived it and still know that Jesus loved them. It's going to be here. It's going to happen. So in a book called The Careless Society by John McKnight, there's a chapter on backward prophets. And he talks about the fact that Jesus and some of the prophets, they did stuff backwards. They didn't do things like the powers that be did them. And from that book, it says that Jesus is up there with them talking at the Last Supper. And this is his last time to impart any wisdom and final important things, rules to the disciple before he dies. It's his final opportunity to get the central values of the faith into them so they can go to places like Thessalonica and teach it and duplicate themselves over and over again. He says to them, no longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master's doing. He's talking about himself and about God. He said, I call you friends for everything that God gave me, I gave you. So you're no longer servants but your friends. So as we talk about serving in the community, let's stop, stop that. Let's talk about being friends with our community, friends with people who are different than us. Because you know what? We know everything God has told us we're supposed to be doing, don't we? It's in his word. How many times does he have to say it? And as my mother used to say, did I stutter? <laughs> he didn't. When he was given the rules and regs, it was clear that we're to be in this community and of it. It says, perhaps beyond the revolution of Christian service is a final revolution of being friends. Friends are people who know how to care, respect, struggle, love justice, and do life with each other. Friends are people who understand that it is not servants who make gods in the world. Friends are people who understand that it is through their mutual action that they become Christians. And I would change it to better Christians more useful Christians, more educated Christians. We ask a lot of times, what's going on in our world? What's going on in Chicago? What's going on in those communities? Because we're not there. If we leave it, that's what's going to happen to it. Where there's no salt, there's no flavor. We're going to be the salt of the earth out here. It says, here we are a nation of professionalized service. I like to do stuff, give stuff away. That's okay following Christ's mandate to serve. And here he is at the last moment of his life, getting it like backwards again. The final message here is not to serve, rather to be friends. So I'm just going to let you see the last portion of this. And as I was doing my doctor, that means absolutely nothing to Jane McGee. This is what I put at the end of it. It says, 
Why friends? It's a continuation of what he's saying rather than servants. Perhaps it is because he knew that servants could always become lords, but that friends could not. Servants are people who know the mysteries that can control those to whom they give help. Friends are the people who know each other. They are free to give and to receive help. In our time, professionalized servants are people who are limited by the unknowing friendlessness of their help. So, yeah, we can give away some stuff, but you don't get to touch the people. You don't get to be friends with them. You don't get to know them. You don't get to know their situation. Not so you can interfere and give them the stuff they need, just so you can be friends. Don't you know how to be a friend? It says friends, on the other hand, are people liberated by the possibilities of knowing how to help each other. The next slide and the final slide is, who will you be by the power of God and his spirit in your community? So let me slip back into that passage and say a little thing to you, but I'm going to put Christ Church's name in there. And this is probably what they would have said about us. To the church on the corner of 31st and York Road, grace and peace to you. The cloud of witnesses around you and those who have laid the path for you, thank God for you and all you did to continually keep you in their prayers and me in yours. For what you are doing and what you have done in the past We know that you're celebrating your 50th anniversary and we remember the work that you have produced in the past. It was prompted by love. Your endurance in Oak Brook produced by faith the things that you have done and supported and labored with because of your love for Jesus. We love the way you've hung in there. But let's write a new chapter for Christ Church, a new history for the next 50 years. Let's place ourselves within the context of the passage that we read earlier about what all they did in Acacia and those different places. Maybe it'll say this. We are people loved by God. And we know that he has chosen you because the gospel has been evident in you. In those early years, you moved out with the power of the Holy Spirit over in Butler School with the deepest conviction to build a church that shared the power of God to save. So much so that you built a wonderful building, ministered to the families that were here and supported the families of God here and around the world. The Lord's message rang out from you, Christ Church, and your faith is known everywhere. So really, because you're good at being friends, there isn't much else to say. Your movement in the power of the spirit has spoken for itself. With that kind of testimony, it's really easy to rest on our laurels. You know that? To say, we've done a good thing. We've got the commons now. We've got 75 kids going to camp. We've got 100 kids doing this. We've got this great children's choir. We've got 150 voice choir. We've got best pastors in town. And we do. All true. But we need to be more. We need to be called in the image of God. So my question to you And there's a picture that shows you as you go to work, as you go back to school. Who will you be by the power of God in your community? Who will you be infused with the Holy Spirit, taking the gospel to those that are around you? I'm challenging you. Get to know the people in your neighborhood. 
So, Father God, we thank you that you've given us this opportunity to reflect back over the years. We've given us this opportunity to be encouraged by those people in the past. And, God, you've given us now a new mandate to encourage, to be children of the light, to be salt and light right here in the community around the church on 31st Street. We thank you that this place is a lighthouse. And, God, we are waiting to see what you're going to do in the power of your transformative spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.